Hello, and welcome to Come Towards Delight, the podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gregson. My mission is to find everyday people who are delightful. The people I interview have attractive energy and a positive outlook on life. And I want to give them a platform to share their stories so that others can have hope in the midst of their struggles and see delight in a world that at times can seem gloomy. I will uncover the life experiences of the guests that I interview, which have enabled them to look at life in such an inspiring and delightful way, with the belief that to understand the light, one has to be acquainted with the dark. My guests will share their personal experiences on finding their way through dark and hopeless times and give us a glimpse into the powerful gifts they received in their darkest hours to rise up, take up hope, and view life through new, hope-filled eyes. Is it possible that in our darkest hours, we are given a gift to find the light which leads to our greatest delights? Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Come Towards Delight, the podcast. My name is Mike Gregson. I'm your host and really feel really fortunate today uh, to be meeting with somebody who I just connected with, thanks to good old coach Jim Johnson, uh, who has become a, a hero of mine. Um, what a great man that man is. But he, he automatically, when I said, hey, is there anybody that you know that has a story that would relate to my podcast? Um he sent an email that connected me and Swen Nader. And Swen, um, right away, you shot an email back to me and said, let's do this, basically. Let's let's talk. Let's figure this out and let's talk. And uh, I sent you a, a short questionnaire and, and just trying to find out a little bit more about you. I, you know, obviously, I didn't know who you were at that point. And you sent it back to me and holy cow, I, I thought, wow, this is this is amazing. And you also sent me your website. And come to find out you played basketball in, in college. I mean, in learning about your childhood, uh, it wasn't an easy road for you. But you played basketball in college for one of the great, well, the greatest coach of all time, John Wooden, uh, UCLA. And, and then you had a, a great career after that. And um, it's fun to learn that about you. And, and, and I've gone to your website and I've researched you a little bit. And you, the accolades are awesome. And, and you've done some, you've had some amazing opportunities in your life because of how hard you've worked. But what is so amazing about your story is, is it wasn't just easy for you. Um, there's, there's a lot of backstory to it. And, and I, anyway, Swen, I'm really grateful that you would, you would get on with me here in Utah and you're out in California and you have no idea who I am, but you, you understand the message and what I'm trying to do. And I'm so grateful that you would join me today and share, share some of your wisdom, share some of your story and, and just, you know, um, uplift my audience and i really appreciate that thank you and uh um i'm i just want to say hello to everyone that's listening and everybody's in a different place and i know it's a crazy times but uh you know crazy times sometimes uh create challenges and we uh, we deal with them we learn from them my god this zoom thing just kind of took off it was around before all this, but then all you know, we had it, and, and everybody's using it. We use it in the office. I work for Costco, uh, Costco Wholesale in the corporate office, and we used to have meetings in rooms, but now we just sit at our desk. You know, I'm, I put on about twenty pounds. So anyway, uh, <laughs> no, it's it's uh, it's great, and yeah, if I can, uh, I wish I could hear everybody's story that's out there. I'll share mine, and, and maybe somebody can um, can relate to some of it. Yeah. 
Uh, let me tell you, I was born in another country. I was born in the Netherlands, 1950. My mom and dad uh, divorced. There were three of us children. My sister was the oldest, I was the next, and then my, we had a little brother. When I was three, my little brother was one, <laughs> my sister was five. Uh, my mom and dad divorced, and my, in those days in Holland, the, the woman got nothing. She got the kids, but she got nothing. nothing. So she had to figure out how to, how to survive. Now, she was a woodcarver, uh, probably the, the world's greatest female woodcarver of all time. Uh, Nora Hall is her name. She can look, they can look out on the web. Nora, Nora Hall. Yep. Uh, she did, uh, you know, uh, now this guy wasn't there when he, when she carved his bedroom, but it was Hugh Hefner. Yeah. So he was gone. Um, but she carved it and then Madonna in and, and several other uh, great, uh, she's amazing. Anyway, um, so she survived that way, but she could only take my, my little brother with her and my sister and I were farmed to a friend of hers. So we lived with them and, uh, and my mom met my stepfather. They, I'm going to go fast over this part. Um, they wanted to go to America, so they told us they were going to go to America and take my little brother with them. My sister and I would stay there, but they would send for us. So my mom and dad in 1955, my mom and stepdad went to America and they moved to Arizona. They had sponsors, the Quakers were sponsoring people to come. In those days, you had to have a sponsor. Huh. That made sure you made it, you got a place to live, you got a job and all that stuff. Now they let anybody in. Uh, and then, you know, whatever happens, happens. But anyway, so my sister and I ended up going to a foster home and then another, about three foster homes uh, and finally an orphanage. And this is from 55 to 59. We got letters from my from my mom. We didn't see my dad that much, son. But we got letters from my mom, you know, about America. God, I wanted to go because I don't know if you know Roy Rogers, but Roy Rogers and Dale Evans had a show, a cowboy show. Of course, you know, kids, you think it's real. And in Holland, in the neighborhood, in one of the foster homes in that neighborhood, one house had a TV. And on Wednesday, all the kids would go there to watch Roy Rogers. Yeah. And my dream was to be Roy Rogers with guns and, and a horse. And I thought that's that was America. I thought that's, that's it. That's, that's the dream all, right all there. I <laughs> all I knew about America was Roy Rogers. So that was my dream. So as we're in the orphanage in 1959, uh, you know, about August or so, uh, we were called to the office. And there was a lady there in a uniform. That was a, a guest, right? She was a stranger. But the director told us that she was going to take us to America. And uh, so so here's, here's what happened. My mom and, and stepdad had a sponsor. They, their name was the Andersons. They were Quakers. They were in, Cal in Arizona. And that's where the, my mom and stepdad settled first. But then my, my dad got a job in California, so they went to Long Beach, California, and then lived there. Um, so the sponsors found out that my stepdad had no uh, desire to bring my sister and I over. Oh. He had the money, but he said he wasn't going to do it. And it was killing my mom, and they knew that. So they went to a TV show called It Could Be You. 
that was a, a show that was like, this is your life. It was on Saturday night live nationwide. No kidding. And it was called the show of surprises. And they said, can you bring these kids over and reunite them with their family? And they said, uh, yeah, we can do that. No, but, you know, it took a while for them to check it out, you know. Sure. But, so that's why that flight attendant was there. And uh, she was, she took us, you know, we said goodbye to our family at the airport. And we ended up going to uh, New York and then, uh, and then to LA. And then we uh, were put up in the Beverly Hills Hotel. Can you believe this? From the orphanage in Holland to the Beverly Hills Hotel. And uh, I was in heaven. I was looking all around for him. I just I couldn't find him. But you know, as, as it turned out, he, he's probably only about a mile away. Right? <laughs> How does he park his horse in this place, man? Yeah, it didn't smell like you know. Yeah. It didn't smell like that. There was a big swimming pool. I'd never seen one. Anyway, it was really it was an amazing time. And so we, uh, I think the next day we went to the studio. It was NBC Studios. In practice, they had built a, a nice little windmill that my sister and I could fit in. Because in Holland, you know, you have windmills, tulips, yeah. and, and wooden shoes. And so they built one that was cut out in the back so my sister and I could get in there. So the next day, so here's what happened. The Andersons, the Quakers, told my mom and stepdad that they got four free tickets to this show. Oh, no kidding. So they drove from Arizona to Long Beach, California, and then they picked them up. And they went to the show. And so my stepdad and my mom were thinking that, uh, I think my little brother was with him too, that they just got a tickets to a free show. Just going right? to watch, yeah. Uh, just going to watch. And all of a sudden yeah. they got called up on stage and then the windmill, and the curtains go back on the windmill and we come out. And it was, uh, it was pretty cool. So, okay. So you come, you join them in California. This is about five years later. What's next? Well, found out my dad was uh, very, very upset about this, my stepdad. Uh, and uh, there was abuse for 10 years, uh, physical abuse, verbal abuse. Mm. Uh, couldn't have friends. Home from school right away. Weekends in your room. Uh... Study, study, study. Couldn't join sports. Uh, couldn't take a warm shower, cold showers. He uh, he took the lock off the bathroom door so he can go in and check the water while you're taking a shower. And if it was warm, he beat the heck out of you. I mean, just beat the heck out of you, right? So it was like that. And then no, uh, my mom, you know, should have done something about it, but she didn't. She got a couple of black guys. Yeah, I was going to say that he abused her too. Oh, yeah, and he threatened her with a gun and all that. Oh. He had a gun. And uh, so it was really bad. But, you know, in those days, there wasn't a whole lot they could do. Oh. Um, so anyway, so and uh, it was – I had cav – he never went to a dentist. So I had three or four molars that were just about gone, right? Oh. And I was in pain every night, and I couldn't sleep and all that. And so so here's what happened. I went through high school like that. 
And then uh, junior college, I walked out of Cypress Junior College. This is Orange County. We had moved to Orange County, which, you know, not far from Long Beach. And I walked on the campus, and there was a coach, assistant coach, Tom Lubin, that saw me. By then I was – now, I tried out for the high school basketball team, and I didn't make it. So I I never played any high school basketball. And I really wasn't interested in playing college basketball at all. I was really good in math, and I was going to do something with that. You know, I was out in calculus already. And so – this coach said, uh, he started talking to me, he said, you want to play basketball? And I said, well, uh, yeah, I guess, but my stepdad would never let me play. He said, well, let me take care of that. So he said, meet me on the courts. And then we had no gym. It was a new school. So we, he showed me the hook shot that his uncle, Frank Lubin, showed him. Frank Lubin was the an Olympian. He was an All-American at UCLA. He was the center on the first United States Olympic basketball team, 1936 Berlin, Jesse Owens. Yeah. That one, right? Yeah. And he showed Tom Lubin, who was the assistant coach of Cypress, the hook shot. And Lubin showed me and he said, now you know how to do it. Shoot 200 a day. I ended up, Michael, I ended up shooting 500 a day. Awesome. 500 a day. That takes a lot. And I, I couldn't jump, man. I was, you know. It was amazing. I was white and I couldn't jump, you know? <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> yeah. <what> are, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I couldn't touch the rim twice in a row and I was 6'9". You were 6'9". Holy cow. 6'9", yeah. 6'9", when I got to junior college. and yeah. Ended up being 7 feet. Yeah. So, um, so Lumen, you know, so I, he talked my stepdad and let me on the team. Uh, I don't know how he did it. He just sweet-talked him. I was on the team, but I didn't play my first year, except last couple of games I got in, and I actually did really well the last couple of games. But that, but between my sophomore, uh, between my freshman and sophomore year at Cyprus, Lubin took me. I lifted weights. I did all my hook shots, made all my moves, worked out a lot, and then he took me into the L.A. inner city, where I was the only white guy in the gym every Saturday and got my ass kicked, got my ass kicked, got my ass kicked. And then I started kicking some ass. And you got you know, back I, up and kept going. That's where I learned how to play. And, and you know, what's really cool about that situation is there, there's no color. It's if you can play, you're a player. If you can't play, no matter what color you are, nobody wants you. Would you go down there by yourself too? No, I didn't have a car. Um, Lubin took me. Kept going and grinding it out. Oh man, it was it was rough, but I loved it, man. I loved the game. I loved the game, and I was willing to go through that uh, pain just to, to gain to gain an inch of experience and to get a little bit better. You know, a, a ton of pain for an ounce of improvement. It, it, it's okay. Yeah. And, uh, and I learned so much. And there were people, you know, there were guys that would just coach me there and say, "That's all right, man." I remember the first time I got dunked on by somebody. This guy just backed me in and corkscrew dunked on me, and everybody in the whole gym just fell out laughing. They were laughing at me, right? And I was standing there, and and uh, and I thought to myself, I'm going to work out, and I'm going to do that to him. Yeah. I'm going to do that to him. And you know what? Next time, it's my turn. Two weeks later, I corkscrew dunked on him, and everybody fell down. So didn't matter what color you were. If, if you can play and, and they respected that 
Yeah. You know, and I respected them. There was some, you know, you know, a lot of those guys on welfare or whatever, they just came to play. They were gym rats. Some of them were horrible and some of them were pretty darn good. Anyway, that was the uh, experience. So the next year at Cyprus, I made All-American, uh, player of the, of the league, uh, 26 points, 16 and a half rebounds. I got recruited by major universities. You know, most of them ended up going to UCLA because Coach Wooden told me, he said, we got a guy named Bill Walton coming in, but and you're not going to play much, but you'll play against Bill and the first team, the best team in the country every day in practice. So you got like four or five uh, games, and then you get coached by me, and I, he said, with your body, I think uh, you can make professional basketball. And so I chose that. That's awesome. And so you came in to UCLA the same year that Bill Walton came? Yeah, the same year. He was freshman, and I came in as a redshirt uh, junior. Which I gotcha. Sophomore. And I sat the bench. I redshirted my first year. It means I wasn't even on the team. And then for two years after that, I sat the bench and played about two minutes a game. I love I love Coach Wooden. Um, I've read a couple of his books and just one of the best characters I think that's ever lived on this earth. And how was that uh, playing for him? How could he be one of the best people on earth when he only played me two minutes, Michael? <laughs> two minutes a game. <laughs> I spoke too early. I take it all back. <laughs> well, the, the, the thing was he only played seven players. That was, that's, that was his rotation. The rest of us sat and we practiced. And that was the way it was. So what was it like playing for Coach Wooden? I have no idea. So what was it like learning from Coach Wooden? How about that? Uh, well, you'd learn a couple of things. One, you know, you're around the guy about three hours a day. And that makes a difference. You kind of understand that in his really tough way, he loved you. Uh, he was like a really tough dad that he, you know he loved you because he would do anything for you as long as it's for your good. But he never did anything for you that you could and should do for yourself. So he had this way of, you know, like a little encouragement, a little slap on the butt. I mean, slap on the back, but sometimes a slap on the butt. You know, yeah. you need it a little lower. And he would get angry and impatient uh, if you made the same mistake twice. Um, he was all about production and winning championships. He never mentioned the word win once. He never went mentioned championship at all. Uh, we were just, you know, following the pyramid of success, trying to become the best we could be and see how good we could get as players and as a team. But he was after the championships and he wanted to beat those other coaches and uh we were uh, in his way <laughs> you know in a sense right so he was very impatient but he what a great teacher he was and i think that's besides his character of never uh, belittling anyone never never making fun of anyone uh, giving you what you need giving you shots uh, teaching you how to play the game uh, his example was was something that really stuck with me, and and as a person, but also his example as a teacher. I had only had one basketball 
coach before that, which was Don Johnson at Cypress. And it just so happened Don Johnson had played for UCLA. It was an All-American in the 50s. So the practices were similar. So I knew that quality, but Wooden was something else. He uh, he was a, I mean, he, he wasn't fun to be around in practice if you weren't performing and producing and if you were slacking. Everything, we had two and a half hours of practice and we got more done in two and a half hours than most uh, teams got done in a week, I'm sure. No kidding. So efficient sprinting from drill, from drill to drill, uh, three, four, five sips of water during practice, free throws on the side while the scrimmage is going in, you check yourself in. He was a master teacher and a master at getting the most production out of every minute of a practice. Unbelievable. And, um, and hope. So I ended up writing, co-writing a book uh, called You Haven't Taught Until They Have Learned with uh, Ron Gallimore, who's a UCLA professor which uh, is a study on UCLA, on John Wooden's teaching methodology. How cool. Um, I, you know, I've heard, I've heard you talk about just um, listening to you and, and some other presentations you've done. I've heard you actually talk about how he was the kind of character that whenever he went to stay in a hotel while you guys were traveling, he would leave the room clean and leave a tip for the, the housekeepers. I'm in the hotel industry and you don't hear of anybody doing that. That's pretty special. And he would teach the same, the same thing. That's, that's amazing. So you, you grew up in an orphanage. You had a stepfather that just like your mom wanted you there, but your stepfather didn't care, was, was abusive, was, was awful to you. How was your self-esteem as you entered into UCLA and, and you started playing for them? Had you already moved on from that? Did you not worry about it a whole lot or did that kind of stick with you? No, uh, well, I didn't tell you this, but my sophomore year, after my my summer in the ghetto, right? I started uh, the first game we played was against Cerritos College, and I was a starting center, of course. Uh, and they had the, the best center in the in the state, Ed Fabma. He was really, really, really good, and he was going to go major university. He was about six ten, same height as me, just about big guy, could shoot, and, and he had had it all. We played him at their place, and uh, I just destroyed the guy. Uh, I got, and I hit two free throws to win the game. And uh, it was just uh, – and then my name is in the paper, right? And then – so they're writing all kinds of stuff about me, like, wow, this guy's the guy to watch. Yeah. And my stepdad saw that, of course. And he told me, he said, I want you to quit the team. You tell the coach tomorrow you're not going to play basketball anymore. And so the next morning I grabbed a bunch of clothes and I went to school and I left and I got to stay with one of my teammates at their, in his house. And I moved around from house to house to house, um, you know, as people, you know, took care of me. But I, I left. So, um, yeah, did I answer your question? Yeah, it does. And and I, so I know you kind of go through this period. You, you obviously you're back, you're, you're back up to Bill Walton, but you're playing against the best every single week in practice. And that really prepares you to then be drafted into the ABA. And you were the first round, you were the first pick in the draft, correct? I was a first round pick in the NBA. Yeah, that's right. 
I had a break. I had a couple of breaks. One, after my sophomore, after my junior year, Coach Wooden got me into the Olympic trials, 1972. He, he talked them into having me in there. He said, Swin's not going to make the team. He just needs experience. Can you just put him in there, put him on the team? And so um, they did, and I ended up leading the whole camp in scoring and making the team. That Those coaches for the Olympic team hated UCLA. They hated Coach Wooden because Coach Wooden was invited to be an assistant coach on the Olympic team after we had won championships. And he said, I'm not going to be an assistant. I've won all the championship. I'm a head coach or nothing. So they said, well, we can't do it. So anyway, so there's a bad feeling. And so there was a bad feeling against me when I got there. And it was a long story, but they didn't uh, feed me. Uh, I, I couldn't eat uh, certain times and it was it was a weird thing. Anyway, I huh. lost 10 pounds. I had to quit. And they didn't mind getting rid of me at all. But anyway, that was a big break because I got nationally known for that. And then after my senior year, I got Coach Wooden got me invited to the Pizza Hut All-Star Game, which featured the best 24 seniors in the in the country and i wasn't one of them because i hadn't played <laughs> but as it turns out i was one of them because i got mvp i had uh, like uh, 30 some points and 25 rebounds and that's what got me the first round pick with milwaukee in the nba right there that game right there so milwaukee was who you're drafted by and then you spent some time in the ABA. Was Milwaukee part of the ABA back then? NBA. Okay, so ABA and NBA back then were, were separate, right? Weren't, okay. weren't there a day? Okay, so you were in the ABA for a while, rookie of the yeah, year. I chose, see, Milwaukee had Kareem. So yeah, I didn't want to be right. backing up Kareem again. Or Like I tell people, I didn't want to move him out of his spot. So, <laughs> so I went to uh, the ABA and, uh, you know, San Antonio and all that and had – rookie of the year and then the, the merger came in about 76 uh and I, I ended up going to milwaukee i mean you have a good career you have some injuries though while you're playing right you have a couple injuries and, and you mentioned this to me where these were pretty hard times for you and you really had to kind of dig in and, and get going again um a blowout in the knee is that right yeah well, uh, when i was in the aba i took a jump uh for a rebound and part of my kneecap came off so I had to have surgery on that. I played the rest of the year, which I shouldn't have. But that was a, you know, it takes a year to come back from those things. But I did. I came back, and, uh, and then there was a merger. And then uh, when I was with uh, the Clippers in San Diego, uh, my uh, I started getting a part of my tendon came off the right knee. See, I'd done a lot of squats, heavy squats and jump squats and all that. So that's probably why my back is is out right now. But yeah, I'm sorry. But let me tell you this. I'd do it all over again. Here's here's the deal. I I love the game and I wanted to see how good I could get at it. And I you know, I was on a a, a time uh, crunch. Because I need, I had, once I started playing, I had five years to make the pros or, or it's over. And, and, it, and my dream was to be a Laker because when I was, I used to fall asleep as, as a teenager with a little transistor radio under my pillow listening to Laker games. 
you know, Chick Hearn talking and Will Chamberlain and yeah. uh, Jerry West, uh, Elgin Baylor, all these guys. Uh, I dreamed of being a Laker and I ended up being a Laker my very last year in the NBA. Uh, so the dream came true, but I, I really wanted that. I wanted to make pro. I just love the game and I just want to see how good I, I can get at it. And really that's, that's all anyone can ask. This coming from a kid that went to basketball tryouts in high school and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you didn't even have a pair of shoes. Yeah. I didn't have a pair of shoes. Yeah. I mean, this is uh that's quite amazing. And eventually towards the end of your career, you you're traded to the Lakers, which this is the team with Kareem on the team. Correct. And, and you were able to play in the NBA finals. Yeah. Against the Celtics. Yeah. We didn't win. I have a couple of regrets. Uh, one in junior college, God, we, we were ranked second in the state, but we didn't win our league. We got beat by this uh, real Hondo on the last second inbound uh, pass to my guy who jumped up and put the ball in. They threw it to me, and uh, that was that. And then uh, the seventh game finals. But, you know, those, those are regrets, but I – I believe I did the best I could uh, to try to become the best I could be. And, uh, yeah, I probably would have done a few things different, but I was, certainly couldn't have worked harder. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to go from the start that you had to now, you, you, now you're a keynote speaker, you uplift people. You tell people you – you talk about a story about overcoming trials and challenges, climbing mountains. Yeah. and and having success and now you're turning around and you're able to teach people to believe and have faith and that's what that to me that's what it's all about um you mentioned in the questionnaire that i sent you also mentioned that there was another dark part of your life and and you mentioned your daughter do, do you mind talking about that a little bit or is that a no that's okay uh this is uh in january the 31st, 2017, my first daughter, Alicia, died of a drug overdose. She had, it was a long, long battle of, um, against the drug. This is the hard stuff, you know, it's just meth and all that. And um, she was clean and sober and she had a son. She'd lose a son to, uh, and then of course my other daughter would take him in instead of, you know, child protective services. Luckily, his name is Chase. He's he's an amazing kid. Hmm. He's an amazing kid. He's ten now. He's just a great kid. Um, and then she'd uh, get sober and work to uh, get him back again, you know, through CPS and. Uh, she, that happened several times, but she she almost died a few a few times. I remember her in an emergency mm. after swallowing a golf ball size meth. Uh, her heart rate was 175. Her blood oh. pressure was 80 over 30. She was packed in ice. Her temperature was 106, and she made it. You know, and then two days later, she's back on meth. But she got, when she had her baby, she got pregnant. She happened to be in, uh, in Wisconsin. And uh, it was about wintertime starting and uh, she begged me to come home. And I said, all right, I'll bring you home. And she stayed with me. I was divorced and I had a little condo. So she was pregnant 
and had her baby and uh and chase uh and then you know she went back to it it was tough this girl <coughs> was a gifted sushi chef i mean gifted no kidding and you know that's a man's world sushi <laughs> that's a man's world and she she more than held her own super talented great kid just had this uh, disease it was a disease that she had and yeah, um, on that day, uh, four o'clock, the police called me to come over to her condo and I went over there and they told me what happened. And uh, and we got to care Chase right away. I got him with uh, my other daughter, Valerie. She's great. And her husband, Carlos, and they have two children. So Chase has a brother now that's uh, Aiden and a sister and his brother is only eight, they're only eight months apart. Chase is older. Oh, how cool. So he's doing really well, but he knows who his mom was and, uh, and he loves her. And someday by the grace of God, they'll be together again. Amen. I, I'm sorry that you lost your daughter. I, uh, I've battled with addiction in my life too. And, and, uh, it's a, it's, it's hard and it's dark and it's, you know, but I, I, I can't imagine um, losing your child to that. And, and so if, if you don't mind, um, maybe like as, as we get kind of come to an end here, maybe just share. Um, I've got a couple questions for you I want to finish with. But if you wouldn't mind just recapping your whole life story, um, starting and, and your father dying when you're three, not having that father figure and then a stepfather stepping in and basically moving your mom away from you across the world you getting dropped in an orphanage there for five years before you get put on a TV show and reconnected to your mom. And then you're abused for so long with your dad. I'm stepdad. This is just, this isn't statistically you're not being set up for a whole lot of success here. Um, odds are against you. And yet somehow you rose and somehow you dug in and somehow you connected um, what would you attribute some of that to, if you will? Well, God, <laughs> without God, nothing is, is possible like that. So I'm sure there was uh, a providence, providential hand of God uh, over me. Uh, he loves me through his son, Jesus Christ. He loves me. And, and uh, you know, it's, uh, but, I don't know. Do I have a personality where I just kind of keep going? I don't know. You know, this, the subject that we're talking about today is a subject of almost every motivational speech, making lemonade out of lemons, right? And everybody wants to know, well, how do you do that? Um, how, how did I do that? I didn't see I loved basketball so much, Michael, that nothing was going to stop me. When my stepdad said, you're going to quit the team, I said, nope, I'm leaving. No matter what. And I had injuries, you know, that would have ended a, a careers. But I, I worked hard on rehab, and I came back, and I came back, and I came back, and I never quit, and I never quit. I just kept on believing um, because I loved it so much. And that is, if you love some something that much, then, you know, are you willing to work at it? How, you got, everybody has to ask themselves, how hard will I work at this? 
right? So, so you don't know this, but I'm a magician. Yeah. And I do cards and I do coins and things. And, you know, I'll, I'll blow your mind with something. But I spend three hours every morning. I get up at about 3 o'clock in the morning every day. I go to bed about 9, I get up at 3, and I practice my magic. And I do the same thing over and over and over and over again and try to work out the kinks and, and all that. How hard, you know, what, how, much, how, how much is enough? How far, how good do I want to get at this? You know, that, that's a question. How good do I want to get at this? I want to get so good. You know what? Here's the answer. I want to get as, get as good as I'm capable of getting. And if I focus on that and really see what my potential is and try to get as close to that as possible, I'm going to be pretty good. So that's the way I approach everything. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I, I just don't quit. I just, yeah. I just keep going no matter what, and uh, and that's what everybody says, right? Never quit. But the bottom, the bottom line is, you do you love it? Yeah. Do you if you don't love it, you're not going to go. The, the I don't know if you're familiar with John Wooden's Pyramid of Success, but <clears throat> the two blocks are industriousness and enthusiasm. Industriousness is hard work, and enthusiasm is a love for what you do. Passion. Those are the cornerstones for a reason. If you don't love what you do, you're not going to make it to the top of the pyramid, no matter how hard you work. If you work real hard, you know, if, if you love what you do but you don't work very hard, you're not going to get to the top. But it's one that feeds the other. The harder you work, the more you love it. But are you willing to... Do you get to a plateau where, dang, you're pretty good, right? And and are you willing, do you want to see what's above that? Those are the Larry Birds. Those are the Bill Waltons. Those are the Kareems. Those are the guys, you know, the Michael Jordans, that especially Michael Jordan, who will, who loves to test himself to see if there's another level. Let me give you a, a, a poem by Grantland Rice that's called The Great Competitor. Beyond the winning and the goal, beyond the glory and the fame, he finds a flame within his soul born of the spirit of the game. And where the barriers may wait, built up by the opposing gods, he finds a thrill in bucking fate and riding down the endless odds. Where others wither in the fire or fall below some raw mishap, where others lag behind and tire or break beneath the handicap, he finds a new and deeper thrill to take him on the uphill spin because the test is greater still and something he can revel in. That's it. The test is greater still, you see? Yeah. And yeah. something he can, he is not, he's not happy un, un, uh, until he meets something that can beat him. You remember I I told you about me going a guy dunking on me, right? Yeah, the corkscrew dunk. I was happy. Yeah. Because I found something that's going to take me to the next level. And if there's a bottom line for all this, is that challenges, all these things, problems, and all this like this pandemic and things, those 
if you look at them, this is, can take me to a level I would never get to otherwise. I want to see what it's like up there. I love it. One more thing. You ready? Yep. Think back to the darkest moments of your life, the hardest, the hardest, hardest moments, you know, whether that was with your stepdad or, or your daughter, whatever that may be. What is the gift? What's the gift that you received from that darkest moment that made you feel like you were done? A closer walk with Jesus Christ. You know, when, when my daughter died, I questioned whether God was there because I had prayed and I have notes that I've written that God, God saved her again. She must, he must want her around. And I can see that he wants her around for the rest of uh, her life and Chase's life. And that didn't happen, Michael. And, and, you know, you could say you can mad. I was mad at God and all that. I wasn't mad at God. I just said, where, where, where are you? Where are you? Right. But I found a peace and I found, uh, I can see it in Chase. I can see it in him that he's in a place where he would not be. And Alicia is in a place that maybe she would not be. I don't know. But they say all things work together for good to those who love God. Um, it takes a little while, but yeah, I saw that. And and I felt the love of God through Jesus Christ. I felt his arm around me saying, you just watch. Someday you'll understand. And I said, okay, all right. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that may not believe in Jesus Christ as, as God Almighty and the Messiah and, and, and all that. Uh, and, and I respect that. This is uh, what I believe. And, and I you believe know, I'm right there with you. I feel the same way. And that's, that's what happened to me in my darkest hour is I found my value. And I felt like I was worthless. I found my value. And, and that's because I got on my knees as I was thinking how I was going to kill myself. I got on my knees and said, help me. You know, you're, you're not, I don't know if you're there anymore. I used to believe in you used to teach people about you on a mission. And where are you? And uh, he wrapped his arms around me and, and I'm with you. And, 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 you know, all walks of life, right? It's truth. It's light. All those things lead to Christ. People just don't know that yet, but yeah. they, you know, people believe in the, in the greater power, the greater light, whatever it is, but one day they'll know. And uh, thank you for sharing that with me. Let, me. let me say one more thing. Yeah, please. Full circle. We started with John Wood. We started with him, his tough love in practice. I saw Jesus in John Wood. Now you take John Wooden and his tough love and, and everything he did for me. He got me on those Olympic trials. You know, he looked off, he got me that. And he's after, after is when I really got a great relationship with him. We wrote a couple of books together and things. And he always did things for me. And I did things for him, right? But he always cared. You take that, multiply that by infinity, and you've got God's love. So I was fortunate to see that in a person. I didn't see it in my real dad. I didn't see it in my stepdad. I, I never saw it until I got to UCLA. And I told him that. Uh, and I wrote a poem, I, I, I See Jesus in You. And uh, another one, I Saw Love Once. And that was him. Do you have the, do you by chance have that poem memorized? No. 
Uh, I was going to say, darn it. I'm, I'm going to look that up, though. Uh, it ends. I saw love once. It was not pretend. He was my coach. He is my friend. I love but it. There's a lot more. Well, I, so when I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for what you do. Um, I, I feel inspiration from you and, and this is, this is the mission that I want to be on is very similar to yours is to uplift people. And my, my journey is very different than yours is. And I'll reach a different audience than you do. And, and, uh, but thank you so much for, for sharing some of your light with me and just even the way that you responded to me off that first email from Jim Johnson. I mean, that taught me a lot right there. Cause you were like, all right, let's do this. What, what, what do we got to do? Um, I'm going to tell you one story about me real quick in closing. I'm going to let you go. Cause I know your back's hurt and you need to get a quarter zone shot, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so my wife, and, and I got to tell you, my wife's name is actually Alicia too. So, huh. um, yeah, when, when you said that, I thought, oh, wow. it it's a L I S H A. Yeah. Same way. Oh. And, and, uh, Anyway, um, she's the greatest light in my life. I, I know God's grace because he sent her into my life during my darkest hour. Right, so right. I, uh, I grew up loving the game of basketball, but I wasn't like you. I came from a good home. I got to a point where I was the best basketball player in my school, got into, my, into high school, and I started fluffing class. I had ADD, and I, I started giving up on myself there, and Unfortunately, I didn't have the grades to go. And I went to the first day of traps, got my report card later that day, and, and it wasn't good enough. And I quit. I didn't go talk to my coach, Charlie Whiting, who you may know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, that that crushed me, and that was really hard. But, you know, I'm, I'm fine now. But as I got close to 40, I just turned 40 in November. And a few years ago, I joked with my wife and said, hey, you know, NBA players, when they're about 40, they retire. And I'm like, I've had a dream of playing in the NBA my whole life. Why can't I retire from my dream of playing in the NBA? And I was joking. Of course, I was totally joking. And um, my wife remembered I said that about three years ago. And so for my 40th birthday this year, we, she tells me we're going to go see a movie with my family. And, you know, it's coronavirus. And I, I think, whatever, okay. So we, we get there. We go walking into this movie theater. And all of a sudden, I hear all these people cheering for me. Oh. And I'm like, what is going on? And I, and I turn and look up and I see some family and friends. And I'm like, oh, cool. She rented out a theater, had my family and friends come and watch the movie. Well, I turn around and there's a big banner that says, way, way to go on retiring from your dream of playing in the NBA. And, <laughs> and there's a guy named um, Spencer Hall who used to write for ESPN that we know really well. Yeah. And he was there and they had a podium and they, and he goes, come here, we'd like to ask you some questions. And so they start to ask me questions like it's a press conference. Well, check this out. So I'm a, I'm a, what we call a Mormon, right? So word ball is big in the Mormon world, right? Twin, okay. right? So word ball is like the thing we don't play in the NBA sometimes, but we get it. So my wife gives me this Jersey when I, when I coach some young men to win the regional championship which is awesome. I love this thing. So I kept the Jersey 22 and I know you were 31 for a while, but anyway, um, she gives me this Jersey in this. It's a cheap frame. Of course it was kind of, it was a joke to make fun of me for having a dream for way too long to play in the NBA when I could only jump like eight inches at my prime. So she gives this to me, but look at this upside down Nike sign. Oh my and you God. See what that says? That's just, just couldn't do it. <laughs> so so the whole question and answer thing was a bunch of teasing and, and she actually reached out to Mark Eaton 
and Mark Eaton sent a video clip and he goes, wow, Michael, this is impressive. The tenacity to hold on to a dream for this long and not ever <laughs> making it. That is amazing. So anyway, he's a, he's a great man, but yeah. Twin, I, I just want to say thank you. Um, the mission I'm on and, and I can tell the mission you're on is I want people to feel light. I want people to know that through our hardest, most difficult, darkest battles, don't quit. Hold on, because those right there end up becoming our greatest. We get our, get our greatest gifts, and they lead to our greatest victories. And, and I think your story is a shining example of that. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think, you know, uh, that when times get tough, you're going down the road, you might slow down. But I've, I've realized that if you keep moving, the, the corner that you need to turn is could be really close, right? And, and, and what's the alternative? Quit and never know? I mean, I was able to get to the top of the, of the game, and I should have got higher, maybe, if I had started basketball earlier or whatever. I don't know. But I never found out what it was like to be a Larry Bird or Michael Jordan, or, you know, that, that level. And, God, I, I would have – that's what I wanted to feel like, where you're playing chess and everybody else playing checkers. But anyway, <laughs> the bottom line is – don't quit. Find a way, and see how good you can get. Because you get up there, and it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, and and all along the way, you nailed it. Trust God, because He's there, and He's got. Yeah, if if you put in the effort, He's going to open the door for you. I think so. Yeah. Yep. So, and you're awesome. Okay, Michael. Thank you for tuning in to Come Towards Delight, the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed today's show. I would love to hear your feedback. You can subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcast or any podcast platform you use. If you or someone you know has a delightful story to share that I need to talk to, please email me at come towards delight at gmail.com.